This morning we are going to be, I, I encouraged you through our uh, digital bulletin to be reading um, chapters 7 through 10 of Hosea. Uh, Sarah graciously said, Paul, I will read all of 7 through 10 so that you can save your voice. And some of you are going, don't save his voice, may it be shorter, right? But today, uh, we are going to be looking specifically at chapter 10. Chapter 10. One of the things that we see throughout Scripture is that in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are always portrayed or frequently portrayed as a, as a vine. As a vine. And it's, they're described as God's choice vine. It's, he has planted them. They're, they're beautiful. In, in the book of, I feel like I'm really loud, in the book of Hose, or in Isaiah, he, Israel is described like this. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Can you hear about that? How, how beautiful it is. A man is. And from that very fertile hill and this choice vineyard is going to come some really good, not jam, but wine luxurious wine. Uh, he dug it and he cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewn out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. That's something every vintner is looking for. A great place to plant your vines so that you could have amazing vines that come out with great Huge clusters of grapes which will bring about great wine. But it yielded, according to Isaiah chapter 5, it yielded wild grapes. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is a house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Later on in Jeremiah, it says, uh, Jeremiah 2, it says, Yet I have planted you a choice vine, wholly a pure seed. How then have you turned a degenerate and become a wild vine? The reality is, this is us, isn't it? And we even see that in the book of Hosea, as we have seen this, this picture of Gomer. This woman that... Hosea bought with a price and said, you, you will become my wife. And she said, yes. They took the vows and they, they said, for better, for worse, rich and poorer, till death do us part, right? We will be husband and wife. And then Gomer went down this road of becoming a what? A prostitute. And uh, the book that we've been reading, uh, the version we've been reading, it's not just a prostitute. She is, dare we say, a you're not going to say it, Bob? Not it? A whore. Those are such hard words. Could you even imagine calling your, your wife that word? No. But yet, the word of God, using the, the picture and metaphor of Hosea, the faithful husband, Gomer, the, the wayward, wild wife, uses that metaphor to describe God and his relationship with us. Wayward people. A wild vine. I've described ourselves and described myself as saying, I am Gomer. 
and so are you. So this morning we are going to be looking at specifically this metaphor and this picture of, of Israel. And the theme that I have kind of picked out for this, um, or a title that I've given for today's uh, sermon, is one of, Do You Have a Divided Heart? A Divided Heart. So my friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word, looking at Hosea chapter 10, and it's found on page 756 in the Bibles that we provided for you under the seats, 756, Hosea chapter 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart was false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord and a king what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make cov- with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgments spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the call of Beth Avon, calf of Beth Avon. Its people mourn for it, and they do its idolat- and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters, the high places of Avon. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on the altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gebeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have, have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake us in Gebeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and the nation shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was like a trained calf that I loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and your fortress shall be destroyed. As Shalaman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At the dawn, 
the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this is a lot of fun, right? It's the continued conversation about the need for repentance. It is the continued pointing at... It's the continued pointing at our hearts as God is pointing to Israel's heart. And the, the need to say, do you see your waywardness? Do you see even your divided heart? Because the picture here is that ultimately your wild grapes, what you are producing is going to produce something very sour. So here we are looking at chapter 10. And Israel is, is uh, described as a luxuriant vine. A luxuriant vine. And we, we hear that word luxuriant and we go, wow, luxuriant. It kind of sounds like those who have a lot of money. It's look at the way that they are living. It's luxuriant. But the way that it's described here in the Hebrew is not one of, wow, good for you. You're doing really well. But it is one more of like, you are producing a lot of green, but not a lot of fruit. It's even described in the Hebrew as one uh, as a vine that is just spreading all over without producing much fruit. Her fruit is not ultimately what God is desiring. It's it's the fruit of an idolatrous religion, a wayward religion, one that is is not pointing to God himself. It is a fruit that she is bringing upon herself. Hosea writes, she is like a spreading a luxuriant vine. As this fruit is increasing, what is happening? More altars are being built. As she is focusing on her wants, her needs, her desires, what does she do? She doesn't turn more and more to God, right? Instead, what is she doing? She is building more and more of things that she desires. Her heart more and more is going wayward. It's easy to say that this, this book sounds really antiquated. It sounds like these from the dusty pages of the Old Testament. It doesn't really talk to us in 2019, does it? But yet, if we look at our own lives, this is us. The more and more that we look at this, we can go, yeah, I, I am Gomer. And the more that I find myself turning away from God, the more that I find myself turning to other things. To fulfill me. I create my own gods. I worship other things. I worship my children. I worship my finances. I worship, you name it, you fill in the blank. We are Gomer. So this chapter, it kind of has some themes, even as I think about uh, how God has talked about the church, even in uh, other places. God talks, listen, I, I don't want you neither hot nor cold. You know, there's, and this, this, this chapter in Hosea has been analyzing the, the sin in a sl- slightly different way. He, he does here, what he does here on the basis, he looks really at Israel's heart and saying, you, you've been deceived, and your heart really is a divided heart. Their heart was, in verse, you look at verse 2, their heart is false. Another translation says it is, Literally, your heart is deceived. 
Another translation says that you can look at it as your heart is smooth. Applied to a person's speech, we could translate it as your, your heart is oily, your heart is slick, or you could even say that your heart is double-tongued. The idea here is that the people were just kind of going through the motions of life and doing one thing while actually their intent was doing uh, another thing. These, these people were kind of divided. Their hearts were divided. They were doing kind of a religious thing, but in reality, their, their intent and their heart really was not on the following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, following the true God of Israel. No, they, they, their heart was really more towards the things of this world. Is that true of us? The, the answer is yes. It is absolutely true of us. Of course we struggle with this. So consequently, we, we've got to see examples that Hosea gives in terms of our own hypocrisy. Hosea is giving picture after picture of the hypocrisy, the double-hearted nature of the people of Israel. And we've got to see it through our own lens of who we are. So here, here's the first area that we can see. Israel, uh, Israel may be said to have a divided heart in that she has this supposed love for God, but it's contrasted with her true unfaithfulness. This is the, the burden of the first two verses where the issue is of Israel's just idolatrous worship. The whole background of this book is, is Hosea's marriage, and it comes into full-on view, technicolor right here. For in Hosea's love or faithfulness, it is illustrated by the unfaithfulness in marriage. No doubt when, when Homer's wife, Gomer, I still love that name, Gomer. Please don't ever name your child Gomer. But when she went off with other lovers, no doubt she would have said that she was not being entirely unfaithful to Hosea. Because after all, all she is still, she can still say, no, I really, I am Hosea's wife. I've just got this side gig. I'm not totally unfaithful. I'm not totally disconnected. She may have said that she did still love him, but love like that has no place whatsoever in a marriage. By its very nature and by the law of God, marriage is to be an exclusive affair. One man, one woman for the for the rest of this life that God has given you. That is how God has designed love and marriage. To be exclusive. It is one man, one woman to be faithful to each other. In plenty or in want. In joy or in sorrow. In sickness or in health. Until death do us part. So when another comes into a marriage. What happens is that love, that exclusive love, is betrayed. And the one partner that is wavering, 
is seen to be as an unfaithful partner. No matter what they may say with their words, they are still unfaithful. And this is what Israel was doing. She was becoming, she was coming to the shrine. She was coming to the places of, of worship that were not of God. And she, she was ultimately kind of acting as, pretending as if she was worshiping God in those places. She would have said that God was her God. And, but while she was saying this, Israel was multiplying, adding false false altars and these sacred stones or these pillars. She was adding more and more of these other places. She would have said that these were there for God ultimately, but God did not command them at all to be there. There was one place that they were to be worshiping. Israel was really committing spiritual idolatry with the idols of the land. Here's the reality today. Not just across America, not just across the world, even here today, Christians are doing the same thing. We, we would not even think of denying the existence of our Christian God. These, these people would even claim to be his people and to worship him. Listen, we, we go to such and such a church. We go there. Oh, yeah, we're part of that church. We, we, we go to worship him there at such and such a church, they would claim. Listen, we're not Jews, we're, we're not Buddhists, we're, we're not Muslim, we're, we're Christian. But instead of worshiping and serving him wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, such people are actually in church just for family's sake, for good appearances. It might even help the business. Their heart is divided. So let's make sure that we do not have a divided heart on this point. Let's make sure that we do not merely say that we love God, but we actually love him. And show it in the way that we actually order our lives. Hear me that. Say that again. Let's make sure that we love him and show it by the way that we order our lives. The way that we order our lives. My friends, I, I, cannot, I cannot encourage you too much to order your lives so that you find yourself at least 52 times a year worshiping our God. One, it is commanded in the Ten Commandments. We're reminded in Hebrews not to neglect worshiping our God. Give your whole heart, not a, a divided heart. Give your whole heart to worshiping God. By gathering together. But there's another area. Here's the second area uh, of Israel's deceit concerning her profession of truth versus her actual falsehood. You can see that in, in uh, chapter four, or verse 4 of chapter 10. They utter mere words. Utter mere words with 
empty oaths they make covenants. So judgments spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the land. His point is that the people pretended to speak truthfully, making agreements that supposedly could be trusted, as you would expect of a a, a follower of God, right? But actually, they were attempting to to cheat other people. They They were not actually truthful with their words. But for some reason, they they were hoping that by making these supposedly true statements, which were actually deceitful, false words, they were hoping to gain something for themselves. And it's strange that the people of God who identified themselves as followers of the true God are actually using false words. God is the God of truth. His spirit is the spirit of truth. His word is what? Truth. Eternal truth. To operate by any other standard while saying that one is a follower of God is purely one of a divided heart. One of hypocrisy. Yet professing Christians do this. I'm going to say, yet I do this. No doubt Israel would have claimed that it was just another way of doing business that was, listen, this is our times. You know, this is how we talk. This is how we make deals. I'm not meaning to be untruthful. This is just how we conduct business. And many would say the same here today. But what is this but just another case of the church taking its cues and its standards from the world. Don't we often do that? We take our cues and our standards from the world rather than from the clear principles of the word of God? The only way that we can be the people of the truth is when we are people of the the book. We need to be people of the book. In theory, we are, and we we even say that we are. We acknowledge that this is what our standard is or what it should be. We, we, We can say, man, this is God's word, and it is without error, and it will not fail us. It is infallible. Man, this is God's word. We love God's word. We stand for God's word. We say, this is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. But yet, we have double standards, don't we? We don't allow the word of God to actually penetrate and get into our heart and speak and shape us. We don't take our, wor- our cues from the word of God. We often take our cues from the world. We don't take our standards from God's word, his design, his desire for us. We take our standards from the world that is broken, that is in need of a savior. In practice, many so-called Christians operate exactly the way everybody else in the world does. Right? Can we be honest? We have to rediscover the biblical standard. We have to get into what the word of God says. We have to study it and we have to do our homework. And then we must ask. We must ask this. And this may be a great question for your missional community. On the basis of this word, on the basis of this word, 
what does God want for me today? Where is he revealing a divided heart for me today? My friends, we must increasingly rely on God's divine inspiration. Has God spoken to his people in this book? Does God still speak today? If God does speak through his word, then we must be clear and say, let God be true and every man a liar. We must try to be like him in this important characteristic. Being true, being people of the book. And that, that's even a discipleship tool as you are discipling young men and young women or peers or your own children or in our missional community is saying, dude, I, I, I don't think that... Our desire is to be truthful, and we want to be people of the book. And the standard that you seem to be adopting is one of the world. Can, can we open it up together and look at this and examine it? And maybe God will bring us more closely to him and to his standard. Duplicity is a dangerous thing. So here's the third area. Israel's duplicity or hypocrisy or divided heart was her profession of righteousness, how she professed righteousness while actually practicing evil. And going to her high places, she undoubtedly pretended uh, to be the epitome of goodness. Look at what I'm doing. And, but God wasn't fooled by her so-called profession of goodness. He saw the evil that was actually done in, in the secret. And sometimes it was not even in secret. She, he called these altars, these, uh, these other places of worship, as the high places of Avon that will soon be destroyed. Notice God is not talking here about what we would call merely shortcomings or failures. He is talking about real wickedness that needs to be destroyed. It's, it's this, I, I had to do a little bit of digging because twice in here, in verses nine and in verse nine, there is a double mention of a certain place. Gibeah. And you're going, okay, so, okay, this is just that Old Testament, dusty kind of church, biblical history kind of stuff, which is, my friends, important. When you study, I want to encourage you. When you get to a foreign place, a foreign name, look, there's a connection. There's a story. So, so here's the story. This place called Gibeah, if you take your concordance, you can kind of Find it in a, in a place, and you are, you're going to discover that Gibeah was a town occupied by the, ta uh, the, the tribe of Benjamin. And it comes into history with a terrible, terrible deed. You don't, it, it's not the city that you want to uh, move into. Gibeah had a terrible history. During the days of, of uh, the judges, a priest or a Levite was, was, travel, was on a trip and was on his way home with his concubine, which is another whole another issue, and was found as a nighttime was getting near that he was not going to be able to reach his ultimate destination. And so he needed a place to stop, 
him and his concubine, his second wife, needed a place to stop. So uh, he didn't reach the town of Gibeah quite yet. So he, he went in and he was looking for a place to stay. And no one, not one soul would, would open up their door to him, would not allow him to rest his head. So you can see there's an issue of hospitality here. So at length, finally, an old man came in from the field. It's always the older guys, right? The nicer older men who said, oh, absolutely, come stay at my house. And so they came and stayed at this older man's place. Soon, a band of wicked, depraved, sinful youth of the town gathered outside of the old man's door and demanded that the old man send the Levi outside, Levite outside. It wasn't to play hopscotch. It wasn't to play Fortnite. No. They wanted to have homosexual relationships with him. And that was precisely the sin that Sodom and Gomorrah committed. The old man, good old man, resisted and resisted. But in the end, the concubine, the second wife, was sent out to face the young men. They used her all night long. And in the morning, she staggered back home, fell on the doorstep, and the Levite found her dead. Now, the Levite did something gruesome. In his anger, in his righteous indignation for what had happened to his second wife, he took her, cut her into 12 pieces, and sent her to the 12 tribes of Israel as a sign of the wickedness in this town. The entire nation came against this, this town and nearly wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. It was a dark place in Israel's history, and the people were dismayed at what had happened. I can't believe this happened to a Levite. They did this. They were so angry, but they were equally dismayed at the loss of one of the, nearly one of the loss of the tribes of Israel. But we also discover that God was also dismayed. Not, not just because of the atrocity performed by the Benjamites. He was dismayed just because of the moral tone of all the people was at such a low ebb. It was so low. Not all had participated in the Benjamites or Gibeahs, the, 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 the Gibeites, whatever you want to call them, their sin. But all of them were insensitive to the sin. They were all just dismayed. The book of Judges tells us that in those days, everyone did as he or she saw fit. Or if the good old King James puts it like this, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. God goes back to this horrific period, uses the picture of Gibeah, to portray how vividly he regards Israel's sin. 
since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. And there, there you just continue to do this sin. That is, don't think that what happened at Gibeah way back in the day, don't think of that as an exception to your normal moral conduct. That is a level on which you continue to operate. You keep operating this way. And you're going, some of you are going, Paul, wow, that is a horrific story. I am so not there. I would never cut up my wife. I, we don't have that, that kind of low ebb of morality. No way, that's not me. But don't forget, my friends, you are Gomer. I am Gomer. We have this tendency to be just like them. So instead of submitting to God, we, like the Israelites, continue to embrace our own individual autonomy. Each person becomes a law to him or her own self. Uh, their, their morality was relative to what their heart desired. And we find ourselves there. Is it true that we find our hearts doing whatever our hearts desire instead of saying, God, what is your standard? Is it true? I'll answer for you. Yes. Because I'm answering for me too. Brothers, sisters, Scripture reveals to us that there is a transcendent law that remains binding upon each and every one of us, and that law is based on God's holy character. In our Reformed tradition, we call it the law of Christ, and it can be found in the Ten Commandments, and it has ethical imperatives for each and every one of us, and it's based on God's word. So we are like these people. But here's, here, here's kind of a third big thing that we have here. We are still gods. Those who are his. God says something else. He says his people must and will live differently. We must and will live differently. The one good statement of the principle is found in Paul's second letter to Timothy. He says this. But God's firm foundation stands. I love it. It stands. It's, it's not going to be moved. It's not going to be waved. It's not going to be changed with the cultural tides of our day. It's not going to be changed on church councils. God's true word stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart Move away from iniquity. Move away from sin. You call upon the name of the Lord. You decide and say, yes, I am in Christ. I have received the good news of Jesus Christ as my own, and I'm resting in it. The scripture says, then depart away from sin. Get out of there. In Hosea, the theme comes through an appeal to God's people, to those whose hearts were just 
were, were divided, who spoke of love when actually they were unfaithful, who pretended to be faithful, but in actuality they practiced falsehood, who posed as righteous while they were indulging in all kinds of sin. God appeals, he appeals for love, righteousness, and truth. Hosea Did you pick this up? Hosea 10. This is kind of my bracketed section. Hosea 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. And what are you going to reap? Steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. In other words, till up the soil of your soul so that actually you can reap this harvest of of love and righteousness, and truth. These these three themes, truth, righteousness, and love, are precisely the items that even the Apostle John introduced in his first letter as evidence of a person who is born again. John wrote in in 1 John, he wrote that epistle to assure believers that they were really Christians. If you, if this is you, you are truly a follower of Christ. And at the same time, he gave them three tests by which the spiritual claims could be evaluated. The first is, the first test is the presence of real, practical righteousness in a believer's life. Real, practical. So righteousness is not just this thing given to us from Christ. We get all of his righteousness. He took all of our sin. It's a real practical thing. It's a real It doesn't mean that we are without sin. If any of you say you're without sin, I'm going to call you a liar. John says that a person who claims to be without sin deceives himself and even makes God a liar. But what it means is that the one who is professing to know God must be progressing in righteousness. If your life has... You gave your life to Christ 10 years ago, and you look exactly the same as you did 10 years ago. My friends, you are not progressing in righteousness, growing in holiness. We should be able to look back in our lives and say, man, as a mom, look at how I have been growing in righteousness with these kids because I really would have killed them. In my workplace, I am growing in righteousness, progressing. And my profession is increasingly matched by my actual conduct. It's not divided. It's not hypocritical. It's the same thing. It's beautiful. But there's another test. It's the test of love, which John considers in the terms of the Christian relationship to other Christians. Does he love them in noticeable ways? Since God is love, and since love comes from God, anyone claiming to know God but failing to show love to others is either self-deceived or attempting to deceive. My friends, one of the marks of our church should be a truly loving community. Why? Because God is love. And he has loved us. Therefore, with true and genuine hearts, we should love one another. So how are you doing? You look around the room. Can you say, man, I am, I am loving Pat Myers more and more every day. More than, a, more than when we started Monsieur Day. 
back in 2007. I, I am loving my wife more and more each passing day. I had an immature love in 2001. But here in 2019, I can say that I love my wife more today. That's a mark of maturity. But there's also a third test, and this is a, there was the practical righteousness test. There is the, the loving one another test. And then there is this kind of theological test of truthfulness. It's, it's John's claim that no one who fails to believe that the, the pre-existent Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh at a fixed point in time and history and died for our sin. If you deny that, you cannot be a Christian. And believing in that gospel, believing in that person, Jesus Christ, should add transformative things. So these, these tests challenge our presumptive nature that we have in our lives. I just presume that you're a Christian. These tests are, are, are ways that everyone who claims to be, have a right relationship with God may actually examine our lives and determine it, whether or not our profession is matched by a reality. So I, 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 we look at these for a reason, when we look at the Old Testament, we've got to read the Old Testament and read the, the New Testament hand in hand. Because we can read a prophecy like Hosea and say, man, that's strange stuff. And that's far off. That, that's just prophecy. Man, think of all the digging, Paul, that you had to do to get that connection to Gabeah. And how, how is that even relevant for me? Well, you don't really have to dig all that much. The message is simple, and it is the same from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. God saves us by His grace. That is the message from the beginning to the end. He draws us into a spiritual union with Himself by grace. But those who, who, um, but those who are so drawn to Him must also fact that take into the fact that they are actually in union. We are grafted into Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. That is, that is the reality. And since we are in Christ Jesus, we must be marked with a righteousness that is not our own. We must be love those that he loves. We must not have a divided heart, but we must be true, truthful people. So how do we live? How do we live in light of all this? Because I know that I, I, I suck at loving. I don't do it really well. I'm not always truthful. I don't have this pure righteousness from Christ. I've received it, but man, you look at my life, get under the covers, and you go, scary. Well, it comes back to Jesus. And he, in John chapter 15, he described himself as the true vine. So Israel is described as a luxuriant vine or a spreading vine. You're divine, uh, described as that. But Jesus in John 15 said, I am the true vine. 
And he said this, abide in me and I in you. And the branch, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So friends, the, the, the secret to the Christian life is staying in Christ, abiding in Him as He is abiding in us. The, the key sentence in the, those two verses I just read can mean one of three things. It can be a simple declarative kind of sense. You must remain in me and I must remain in you. And that works. You must. It can also be a promise. Remain in me. And I will remain in you. And it can also be a command. Meaning, remain in me and thus see to it that I, for my part, also remain in you. Leon Morris, one of the commentators, put it this way. Go ahead, Rachel. Jesus means that the disciples should live such lives that he will continue to abide or remain in them. And he goes on to say, the two abidings cannot be separated. Me and him, him and me. You can't separate them. And abiding is the necessary prerequisite for fruitfulness. You stay in Christ, you will bear fruit. No branch bears fruit in isolation. It must have vital connection to the vine. So to abide in Christ is the necessary prerequisite for fruitfulness for the Christian. Union with Christ is the secret to all fruitfulness. And this means that the essential element is new life. Religion has a way of standing over a cripple and saying, you're not walking properly. In fact, you're not walking at all. Here's how you should do it. That's how religion does. It gives you your three points to just being a good person and telling you how to walk. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yesterday at, at this funeral of a young man who committed suicide, I said Christianity doesn't always work like we think it should. You may, you may have received Christ just so that you can improve your marriage and only to find yourself in divorce court. You may, you may find yourself wanting to accept Christ so that I can take care of my depression, but then you can find yourself 28 years later committing suicide. The reality is true Christianity, being in Christ Jesus, it is different than saying, hey, you're just not, you're not walking properly. But Christianity has a way of grabbing hold of your hand and saying, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And as a result, what happens when Christ grabs a hold of us? New life surges into our body. It is the union with Christ 
and the only union with Christ that gives us power to live a godly life. It's not three quick tips that's going to give you a godly life. It is our union with Christ that gives us a godly life. A great promise is given to us that if we do abide in Jesus, if we remain in Jesus, we will be fruitful. I don't know if you ever get discouraged in your Christian walk. I do. Almost on a weekly basis. No, I'm sorry. Almost on a daily basis. I get discouraged. But when we get discouraged, it's good to turn to verses like this and find Christ saying that, listen, stay in me. Paul, stay in me. Abide in me. Remain in me. It's going to hit the fan. It's going to get ugly. You're going to want to be tempted to chase after the world. You're going to be wanting to follow after their, their standards. Take their cues. Remain in me. Stay in me. Because if you do, you will bear good fruit. Not sour grapes. When it comes to gardening, we got three beds in our backyard. My wife wants to get rid of them because they become weed beds. Sometimes we have some really good tomatoes. Sometimes. So I'm, when it comes to gardening, I, I'm more of a hobbyist than a real horticulturist even though I'm from Iowa. But I'm told, and I've read by those who know things about vines, it takes at least three years before they start bearing any fruit at all. It, it must, first year, it must be trimmed, and for it to, to grow, it must be trimmed and then trimmed and allowed to grow again. And then it, and that goes on and off for a number of years. A lot of work. Only after this does it become useful and start to bear fruit. My friend, so in the same way, there are going to be times in your life where you seem to be going through considerable amount of periods of life where you're going, okay, God, what is going on? You're undergoing radical treatment under the hand of God. You feel yourself being trimmed and cut back here, pruned here and there. And you're really seeing very little fruit coming from your life. In such times of doubt, those times of doubt, I want to encourage you, remain in him. Abide in him. Because you don't see what God sees. God has a long-term plan for your life. And you are often a, I can't wait until tomorrow. He has a long-term plan. And he has a different perspective, an eternal perspective. So don't be discouraged if you see this happening to you. Instead, remember that Jesus does promise fruit in its due time if we truly abide and remain in him. Ultimately, God is the one responsible for his vineyard. And he has determined that his vineyard, his true vineyard, will be fruitful. I'm Gomer on a road of
gospel recovery. Longing to remain, abide in Christ. And that's my prayer for you as well. Let's pray.